All right, if you got your Bibles, open to John chapter 14. And then 1 Kings chapter 17. John chapter 14, uh, and then 1 Kings chapter 17. Like Denver said, many of you look great in your Christmas sweaters. Uh, We did pick the warmest December day, I can remember, uh, to do Christmas sweater Sunday. So do your best to try to stay awake with me today. I'm going to try not to sweat like a pig up here in this thing. And so uh, very grateful for you guys uh, who took part in this. And uh, you all look awesome. You all look great. Even those yellow shoes, John, those look good, dude. That's high class. Hey, uh, anyway, our study today starts with this question. Have you ever felt like the present could never be as good as the past. Like I said, this was a little bit of a COVID blues question. You ever felt like the present could never be as good as the past? I kind of picture like Uncle Rico from uh, uh, from uh, uh, what's it called, uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Remember, he's like, I remember I could throw the pigskin a quarter mile. You remember, he kind of drifts back into the past, lives in the past, and all that stuff. Uh, around Christmas time, because of the pandemic and because again hanging out with family and traveling and, and doing different things has really been limited. Um, it uh, it, it can be a time where you kind of look back and go, could it ever be as good as the past? Um, there's a Christmas song that I think kind of sums up the melancholy, and I love it, but it's, it's one of those that just kind of just brings you down. Have you ever heard that song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas? You ever heard that song? Movies always use that song like to show the horrible situation that's taking place, and then it's like, and have yourself a merry little Christmas, and then it's like, now, I mean, that now it's like it's terrible, but you can live in that merriment even now, right? It's this beautiful but melancholy song. And so um, I specifically remember kind of getting, you get the blues this time of year, but man, this year has just been, has just been extra heavy. Uh, and for pastors, it's interesting. You get the blues in a little bit different way too because there's two sermons that people have heard a thousand times, and that is your Easter sermon and your Christmas sermon, your Christmas Eve sermon. And so you're trying to put together different stuff. So one year, uh, it's the first year after my dad has passed away, and I'm trying to put together my Christmas Eve sermon, but it's just not coming. It's the same story, but you're trying to, again, lay it out in a way that, uh, that people will remember it and that it'll be inspiring. And so I'm trying to put my Christmas Eve service together one year and uh, put the Christmas Eve sermon. And uh, so I finally decided I'm just going to mix it up a little bit. Instead of writing my sermon up here at the church office uh, or instead of writing my sermon at the house, uh, I'm going to write it at IHOP. And so I, sure enough, book a table at IHOP in Potomac Yards. That's my favorite IHOP because you can park for free. And so uh, drive over there, park at the IHOP, go inside, and uh, uh, while I'm inside writing my sermon, have a real experience with the Lord at IHOP. I mean, it can happen, people. And so it's great. They set that big old pot of coffee there in front of you, too. And so writing my sermon, again, in the Spirit speaking, just was a beautiful moment. And over the loudspeakers, the Michael Buble Christmas soundtrack playing beautifully with that deep baritone in the background. And so uh, just having a great time doing that. Well, after it's over, I walk out and uh, I'm literally like, this is the door to IHOP and they've got the little outdoor speakers that are there right underneath. And so I step out of the IHOP and I just, I'm looking out and it was a beautiful, calm night, about 9 p.m., beautiful, calm night. Everything is just, it's just settled. Again, the stars are shining. It was just a beautiful little moment. And I'm sitting there and I can hear Michael Buble over the loudspeaker and have yourself a merry little, I'm hearing that just going, man, this is great. And so all of a sudden, the doors open behind me just right there. You got the loudspeakers going, and it was strangely clear for outdoor speakers. Got them going, and the doors open. It's a group of women in their 50s and 60s behind me. And then they just stop, and Michael Buble on cue, just have yourself a merry little Christmas 
now and holds it out. And so then I'm just sitting there. But again, I was just kind of taking in the moment. And then I just stopped about to walk to my car. And then all of a sudden, I take a step to walk to my car. And one of the women from behind me goes, sir, please don't stop singing. She thought Michael Buble was me. And so she seriously, sir, please don't stop singing. And I'm sitting there and I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm about to ruin this for them. And I turned around, they look at me, realize I am not Michael Buble. That was clearly somebody else singing on the, on the deal. And the women, no lie, I go, I'm so sorry, that wasn't, uh, that was me. Or that wasn't me, that was Michael Buble. And the women don't say a word. They like cockroaches scurried to their cars and got away. I mean, it just was so stinking funny. And so I'm trying to hold it together and I get to the car and I just let out this belly laugh in the car for like five minutes because it was so hysterical that someone thought I was Michael Buble. And so all that to say, um, I tell you that to say this, when you feel like that the past could never be as good or the, the present could never be as good as the past, the Lord is always crafting our story. Can I tell you some good news? When the Lord is done with you, you'll know it. He'll take you to be with him. Up until that point, he is crafting an amazing story, not just for your life, but also for the entire kingdom. And we have to trust him, especially in years like this one. Be careful in the way that you work through the pandemic year of Christmas, because this is one that's going to be memorable, for better or worse. You need to make sure that you're doing your best to still let the Lord be glorified and for the main thing to be the main thing. Probably the only Christmas that I can think of that was as weird as this one was probably the first one. Again, you think about what Mary and Joseph are having to deal with. There's a government mandate in that story, too, because they have had to go uh, and do the census. I mean, they're going through a mess of a time, and the Lord lays out a story that we will tell for eternity. It begs the question as we go in today again, um, how does God orchestrate the miraculous? I want to show you something. Look at John chapter 14, and let's jump into verse 12. Look at John 14, verse 12. Here's what comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Stop right there for just a minute. Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before he'll go to the cross, and he says very powerfully to them, hey, you are not peaking with me. The old translation of this verse, by the way, is greater things than I have done, you will do. It's a powerful picture. By the way, you don't hear from that verse, hashtag, you need to go home and be like, hey, hashtag, better than Jesus, all right? That's not the picture in the verse. The idea of greater things than I have done, you will do, is that even though the greatest moment, the most triumphant moment in the history of humanity is the moment Christ rises from the dead, that that is not the end of God's plan, that he is still writing and unfolding a massive, amazing, glorifying story that will build the kingdom and that will establish uh, for generations that God is the one, established for eternity, that God is the one writing the story, painting the masterpiece, that he is the one guiding our journey. What a powerful thing for us to remember. It begs this statement. Are you ready? Miracles and movements of Almighty God are not a thing of the past. He's just getting started. Let me say that again. Miracles and movements of God, of Almighty God, are not a thing of the past. He is just getting started. Greater things than I have done, you will do, Jesus says. And he says specifically, because I'm going to the Father. I will be your advocate. I will be right there uh, with the Father, and we will be putting together an amazing plan for what, uh, for what is in store for you in the future. 
There's a movement right now and a thought right now uh, that miracles are a thing of the past, that that was from a different era, uh, and that miracles are, are something that in our current era are something that are different. I'd like to move, actually, that miracles are happening all around us. Every single one of you, I could tell you story after story in your lives, stories that you've told me, things I've experienced alongside you that could not have happened by any of our putting together that the Lord is the one who has done it. Miracles still happen all around us. Many, many times we are just too distracted to notice them. A great example of that comes to us from 1 Kings chapter 17 as we keep going through our story of Elijah addressing our million-dollar question today, how does God orchestrate the miraculous? The same way that he orchestrated it in 1 Kings uh, more than 2,000 years ago uh, is the same way that he orchestrates those miracles in and through our lives today. Look at what happens in 1 Kings chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 7. Now remember, there's a pandemic taking place. Uh, there's been no rain in the land, and because there's been no rain for several years, there also has been uh, no water to drink, there has been no uh, water for the crops, and so there's a food shortage, there's a water shortage, again, there's just general fear, economic crisis that's taking place for these people, uh, and again, uh, we find out that Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, until he speaks on the Lord's behalf, it is not going to rain again. Now look at verse 7. It says, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go at once to Zarephath in Sidon, underline Zarephath in Sidon, and stay there. I have commanded a widow, underline a widow, in that place to supply you with food. Now stop right there for just a minute. What we have in this passage that we studied last week is we have these protocol verses to set up the miracle that God is going to do, to set up the miraculous. It all starts off with Elijah having a problem and his attention being turned towards the Lord. In that moment, the Lord then speaks to him and says, I want you to go to Zarephath in Sidon. Now let me tell you why Zarephath in Sidon is important. Jezebel, who is going to end up being one of the wicked characters in our story alongside her husband, King Ahab, Jezebel is from Sidon. So what you have in this passage, just file this away and remember it for the rest of our study, the widow wasn't just anybody. The widow was someone who lived in enemy territory in an area that was not sympathetic. It was a Gentile city. It was not sympathetic to the, to the faith of the Jews in this culture. And not only that, because the woman is a widow, it's implied here that she struggles to provide for herself, that she has no way to economically take care of herself in a male dominated culture. And we're going to find out just how dire her circumstances are in the verses to follow. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is the setup for the miracle. How does God orchestrate the miraculous? Number one, through personal conviction. Through personal conviction. It says the spirit of the Lord speaks to Elijah and what the spirit says is I have commanded a widow to supply you with food. There are two individuals that the Lord is working through at the same time through personal conviction to bring about this amazing faith miracle. The Lord is the one who does the work but he has chosen through conviction two individuals to be a part of the process. Now there's a great quote 
quote that comes from a book called The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, Bridges, where he describes kind of this process of faith, and I want to read it to you. Here's what it says. Farming, he kind of likens faith to farming, and he says, farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer. The farmer cannot do what God must do, and God will not do what the farmer should do. Now stop right there for just a minute because there is a lot of good wordsmithing that's going on uh, in this quote. Again, the idea of farming is a crop being produced that is useful for you and for the community around you. But the farmer cannot do it all on their own. All the farmer can do is plant the seed, cultivate the soil, make sure that it can receive sunlight, that it's in a place where the soil is fertile, and then the Lord is the one that sends the sunlight, that sends the rain, that creates that beautiful magic of photosynthesis to eventually cause it to be something uh, that grows and produces eventually a crop or produces a fruit. This process cannot be done without photosynthesis, and we can't do photosynthesis. The Lord can do whatever he wants to do, but he chooses to use us to bring about these powerful faith moments, to bring about these powerful, miraculous things. There is something that we can do in the process. He calls to our hearts and he draws us in so that we will be a part of the process. One of the other great examples of this comes from Luke chapter nine. You can flip there if you want to. Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 12. In that passage, we get Luke's version of the feeding of the 5,000. Here's a situation where there is a need that is visible and the disciples see the need and they want to do something about it, but on their own, they cannot. But they experience that personal conviction that they should do something. Look with me, if you will. Luke chapter 9, and now let's jump uh, to verse 12. As you flip that direction, by the way, uh, Luke is one of the uh, four gospel writers. All four gospel writers write about uh, the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. I love Luke's version because Luke was a doctor by trade, uh, and Luke's version focuses specifically on our personal limitations and what God can still use in those limitations to bring about his glory. Look at what happens uh, in Luke 9, starting in verse 12. It says, late in the afternoon, the 12, that's the leadership, came to Jesus and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place out here. Now stop there for just a minute. Remember, there are 5,000 men that are named in this process. It is possible with women and children there are somewhere between five and 15,000 people that are out there that have been listening to Jesus teach in this remote countryside. And the disciples feel conviction. They feel personal conviction and go, man, we have brought these people out here. We've taught them. Uh, we taught them about our God. Man, we've got to do something for them. They don't have anywhere to stay. They don't have any food to eat. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And look at what Jesus says in verse 13. Then Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. Now stop right there for just a minute. What's implied through these stories is that the disciples don't even have food for themselves in this circumstance. So why in the world, knowing that they can't do it, does Jesus look at the disciples and say, you give them them something to eat. He's inviting them to take a step of faith forward with the personal conviction that they're experiencing and to become a part of the miracle. Miracles happen all around us all the time, but we are so distracted in our phone, in our schedule, in our lives and relationships, in our thoughts. We're so distracted that we miss them. 
The bulk of being involved in a miraculous work of God is simply opening your eyes and watching for it, having it be top of mind so that when it happens, you are able to give God the glory. So Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. What he's doing in that moment is inviting them on the journey with their limitations, but also letting them know you cannot do this apart from me. So look at what happens next in the next part of the verse. They answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go out and we buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. Underline, but about 5,000 men were there. I love this, by the way. We find out from another account from another gospel writer. Andrew shows up, and Andrew is the one of the 12 disciples that shows up with the little boy and says, uh, this young man would like to share his five loaves of bread and two fish with the rest of the group. Can I tell you one of the reasons why that's important? We point out here, only the men are counted. There's about 5,000 men. The picture of God using the little boy is he wasn't even one of the ones that was counted in the 5,000, and he's one of the ones that the Lord uses to produce his glory. The little boy comes up, he offers his lunch, and the disciples go, we got one sack lunch. There's one, Jesus. What are we going to do with the rest of it? I and mean, watch what Jesus does here. It says, but he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Now stop there. And here's where we're going to stop in this part of the story. Jesus still invites them to do something to exhibit faith and to be a part of the process. The first thing he says is, you give them something to eat. You realize that the conviction of the Holy Spirit to take care of these people is the pastor's heart that I'm cultivating into each of you. You need to be a part of this miraculous process, but you can't do it on your own. So they come up and they go, Lord, we've taken stock of this. We have one sack lunch. We ask around. We have one sack lunch. One kid was willing to share. We didn't even count him in the number that we're going to turn into the convention. We can't even talk about that. And they come up and they go, what are we supposed to do here? And Jesus goes, I'll tell you what you do. Take one more step with me. Divide up the thousands into groups of 50. You ever tried to herd a group of thousands of people before? Some of you in this room actually have. Where you tried to separate? This was no small task. Don't see this as just the disciples going, please, everyone hear me. Have a seat in groups of 50. Plus, have you ever done this before? Anytime as a pastor, I say, divide up into groups of six. Guess what? You got a group of three. You got a group of 12. You know what I mean? You guys, again, y'all just do your own thing. You sit there and you go, I, I, I get the spirit of this thing. We'll divide this up. The disciples are told, divide them up into groups of 50. And they step forward and they take part in the process. They cannot turn five loaves and two fish into food for everyone with 12 basketfuls left over. But they can split people up so that each group can experience the miracle together. Some of you are wanting a miracle in your life. You're wanting a miracle for a member of your family that you have been talking to through the holidays, a coworker. Some of you wanting a miracle in society to take place, a true revival. I pray for that regularly, that God would send revival to our country, that he'd send revival to our world. A great awakening would happen, just like in earlier generations. We pray for those things. And the way that the 5,000 are fed, the way that God provides for Elijah and the widow is the same way that he will provide for our nation and our world moving forward. He convicts the individual and invites you to be a part of the process and you must step out in faith and trust him.
If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? A disciple's conviction always brings them to the same prayer. Lord, what would you have me do? Let me ask that. Let me say that again. A disciple's conviction always brings them to the same prayer. Lord, what would you have me do? You have to come to a point as a disciple when you say, Lord, my life belongs to you. My sack lunch, my five loaves and two fish belongs to you. And in the case of this widow, all she's going to end up left is with a handful of flour and just a few drops of oil. And the Lord is going to use that to sustain Elijah and her family all throughout the end of the pandemic. A disciple's conviction always brings them to the same prayer. Lord, what would you have me do? And it begs the question, is God seeking to involve you in something he's doing? Is God seeking to involve you in something he's doing? You cannot change the world by yourself. Only God can do the magic of photosynthesis. But the farmer, the farmer should plant the seed. The farmer should till the soil. And God will not do what the farmer should do. Let's keep moving. Now flip back over to 1 Kings 17, and we'll jump into verses 10 and 11. Get some new verses today. You ready? Here's what it says next. Again, he goes to the widow, or he hears that the widow is going to take care of him. He hears that it's going to be someone that uh, is not of his faith culture. It's going to be someone uh, who, again, is a widow that struggles to provide for themselves, and it's going to be someone at the heart of enemy territory. Now look at verse 10. It says, so Elijah takes that step of faith. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, underline the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called out to her, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he calls out and he asks for the second big faith step. And please, can you bring me a piece of bread? Underline a piece of bread. He's not asking for any more than he got from the ravens at this point. He's asking for a piece of bread. He didn't say, and bring me a loaf of bread and a steak, baked potato, butter, sour cream, no cheese, please. I'm trying to watch my weight. I mean, he doesn't say that. He comes in and he says, look, hey, I need a glass of water. I just need a little bit of water. And she goes, hey, I can do that. I'm not going to let a man, again, die of thirst out here. And he goes, and can you just give me a piece of bread? It doesn't have to be much, just a piece of bread. He sees this woman, this divine appointment that the Lord has put in front of him and knows she's the one that he's supposed to ask. In enemy territory, someone who doesn't necessarily share his faith at this point, he sees her and he asks her that powerful question. He has the guts to say, can you please bring me a piece of bread also? If you're taking notes, how does God orchestrate the miraculous? Number one, through personal conviction. And number two, through divine appointment. Through divine appointment, the Lord did not show him a picture of what this woman was supposed to look like. In fact, he didn't even tell her, uh, he didn't even tell him her name. Instead, when he walks to the village, when he goes to the specific piece of information that God has given him, when he gets there, he sees the woman and knows she's the one. He knows that that was not set up by accident, but that the Lord had put that moment together. You're taking notes, a little quote here for you. Divine appointments are the opening act before the miraculous main event. Let me say that again. Divine appointments are the opening act before the miraculous main event. One of the cool things about planting a church and being the founding pastor is that I can still remember when we didn't know anybody. Every meeting was a divine appointment. 
And in fact, I look around this room today and I think about those of you who have had the opportunity to talk through your story, how you got here. Um, it's amazing. Daniel, I love that jacket, by the way. You look cool in that thing. Literally cool. He's got like, he's got snowflakes on that jacket. It looks good. I remember the first time that you came to our church. I remember uh, getting to pray with you when you got promoted there, hanging out in the National Archives. I mean, I'm telling you, there were so many divine appointments in the way the Lord put us together. In the beginning, we didn't know anybody. The one that predates most of you in this room is Jennifer Johnson. This is Jennifer's last Sunday with us. Uh, but Jennifer, a year before the church was even planted, um, I spoke at an event in Grapevine, Texas, and Jennifer and her husband Rod came up after the event and said, I don't know why, but we feel like God is calling us to move to D.C. and to help you get the church started and planted. And sure enough, here we are almost, gosh, it would have been seven and a half, almost eight years ago when that conversation took place. And Jennifer served as our children's ministry head for a time. Uh, she served uh, as basically my assistant for quite some time, served as our Costco uh, go-getter. Uh, they led uh, Dave Ramsey uh, here at the church. I mean, I'm telling you, they did a thousand things, have led countless small groups, have discipled countless people. And that divine appointment in the beginning, we had no clue that your family would end up being so integral in the way the church was taken care of and planted. Many of you know Bertie Ruffin. You know how Bertie came to the church? A mission team asked if they could do something to do promo for our church. And we said, well, it's hot in D.C. in the summer. What if we did water bottles and then we just put a sticker with the church's website on the water bottle label uh, for the people to be able to get in contact with us if they just needed a drink on the street? Can I tell you how Bertie came to our church? A mission team handed her a water bottle in front of CVS on the corner of M Street over here. And that's how Bertie came to our church. She's been a staple and truly a picture of the heart and soul of Waterfront. When I think back about my new friend over here, my new old friend, Luke Miller, this is Luke's first Sunday in a long time with us. Luke, actually, I've known Luke longer than I've known my wife. The last white Christmas I can remember happened in your hometown of Groover, Texas. Back in 1992, Luke's dad booked my dad to come and preach a Christmas Eve revival. Now, just for the record, there aren't five Christmas Eve revivals happening worldwide. I mean, usually, again, that's a time to go be with family. But we went and spent Christmas Eve in Groover. It sounds weird. Did you ever see that movie Groundhog Day? I always thought that your town looked like the town from Groundhog Day. And then when the snow came down, it was just this beautiful moment. Were you a freshman in college or a senior in high school? Freshman in college. We met in 1992. I was in the fifth grade in 1992. He was a freshman at Texas Tech, and we met in Groover, Texas, and now he's sitting here at Waterfront Church, and it's the second time that he and his family will have been at Waterfront. They were with us for a summer in our very, very first year. You think that junk just happens? Groover, Texas. If any of you don't believe in miracles, find Groover, Texas, and maybe you'll believe in them today, all right? The Lord is at work all around us knitting together our stories. There is no accidental chance meeting. And when our paths cross in the vastness of God's plan, he is putting together something that is good and beautiful and truly special. Some of you know Jordan and Casey Long. The way that Jordan and Casey Long, we met them. Jordan would end up being our first chairman of deacons. Jordan would end up being the first baptism in the history of our church. Jordan would end up being the first Waterfront Church D.C. local board member uh, that we would add to our board team. 
Jordan, I can still remember seeing your ugly head turn around at the baseball game when we saw you guys sitting six rows in front of us when we had heard about you but didn't even know who you were. That divine appointment at the baseball game, a reminder from Almighty God that maybe you should take this seriously when everything begins to line up, when the pieces come together. It's like an insight into God saying, I've been working on this a long time and you now get to be a part of it and see what's happening. Have you ever gotten to see a clock before? And on the outside, it just looks like a beautiful clock, but you open up the inside and you can see the gears all working together, everything turning in its time. And all of a sudden, a clock that looked beautiful on the outside, once it's opened up and you see the gears, it's exquisite. The detail unmatched, the way that it took for everything to come together for that time to be kept is something that is just awe-inspiring. That's a miracle. A miracle is realizing God has been up to something since the start of creation that he is bringing together in this moment for such a time as this. If you're taking notes, it begs this question. So have you given proper attention to a divine appointment. Have you given proper attention to a divine appointment? There are some things in your life, and maybe, just maybe, when I ask that question, the Holy Spirit has dropped into your gut or into your mind a specific relational or a specific networking connection that has happened that you are realizing is not just by chance, but it is something that the Lord has given you because a partnership needs to develop, a friendship needs to develop, a connection needs to happen for the sake of God's kingdom. Have you given proper attention to a divine appointment? Now look at our last verses and we'll close today. This is the miracle itself that's about to take place. But again, don't get lost uh, in the, uh, don't skip the journey that's happening here. Again, there's a need. The Lord provides a little bit of opera, a little bit of a, a insight. He says, Elijah, I'm commanding you to go to this location. And there I've commanded a widow to supply you with food. He shows up. He has the guts to ask uh, for the woman that he doesn't even really know if this is the person. He just has a hunch. The Spirit's showing him. He comes up and says, look, can I have a drink of water? And can you give me just a piece of bread? Can you be the raven here? The Lord's provided for me in the past, but now I'm talking to an actual human being. Can you please help me with this? Now look at verse 12. We find out just how dire the widow's circumstances are also. It lets us know the widow was not just there to bless Elijah, but Elijah had been gifted by God to bless the widow. Look at what happens in verse 12. It says, as surely as the Lord your God lives. Underline the Lord your God lives. It leads us to believe she doesn't share the faith that Elijah has at this point. As surely as your, the Lord, your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home to my family and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Circle, highlight, and underline that we may eat it and die. This is not the woman being dramatic. This is what any one of us does when we feel like we don't have much and God calls us to something greater and something bigger. She looks and says, I don't even have enough to make it to tomorrow. I'm just trying to make it through the day today and you're asking me for this. The conviction of a God that I don't even know and understand is on my heart and has called me to help you, but I don't even understand how all that works. What am I supposed to do with this command from God when I don't even have enough for myself? The next verses are so critical. And Elijah doesn't speak with anger or fire. 
He speaks with gentleness. Please read these next verses, starting in verse 13, with gentleness. Here's what Elijah says. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do just as you have said. You ready for this? But first, underline and highlight, but first, make a small cake of bread for me and what you have, or from what you have, and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and for your son. Now stop right there for just a minute. I want you to hear Elijah's words in the beginning. He says, bring me a piece of bread. And then she says, I don't even have any leftover scraps. We have a little bit of bread to still make. And then it's, that's it for me and my son. I was literally out here gathering sticks so that we can make one last meal and die together. One last meal before everything is gone. And Elijah, seeing this moment, he has stepped out in faith, but stepped even further is now to say, oh my goodness, Lord, I just asked for a scrap. I just asked for a piece. And now she's going to have to cook something special. So he looks at her and says, please make me a small cake. This is like a cupcake that he's asking for. Just make a small cake. Notice the humility in the words of the prophet here. Just make a small cake. I know that it's going to require faith from both of us for this miracle to take place, not because God can't do it on his own, but because he wills for us to be a part of it. So he says so gently to her, just something small. It doesn't even have to be big. I know this is hard for you. I know this is a God that you don't understand. I know it's a command that you're striving to perform just one small cake, one small cake for me, and then the Lord is going to provide for you. Look at what happens. It's a beautiful end of the story. Verse 14, he says, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. The promise of God is give me the little that you have in your life and I will take care of the rest. I will take care of everything else. Verse 15, it says, so she went away and she did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman. Look at this and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word the Lord had spoken through Elijah. I love at the end, it doesn't say the word of Elijah. It says the word that the Lord had spoken through Elijah. This was a promise between God and Elijah and it was also a promise between God and the woman and her family. If you're taking notes, write this down. Maybe the most important part of our study today. What does God, or how does God orchestrate the miraculous? Number one is through personal conviction. Number two is through divine appointment. And number three is through a display of faith. Through a display of faith. Now, just for the record, notice I didn't say through a test of faith. The Lord our God does not test us, and we are not to put the Lord our God to the test. Scripture says, this is through a deposit that you make in saying, Lord, you called for it, you owned it in the first place, you're the one who created it, you're the one who gave it, and therefore, it is at your disposal for whatever it is you have called for. It starts off with our stuff, and then a disciple comes to an understanding eventually 
it's with your life. It's with everything that God has bestowed upon you. And in this circumstance, the Lord asks for a display of faith, not a test of faith, but a display of faith. Some of you realtors in this room or have have bought a house, what do you do to show that you are serious about purchasing a house? You put down something called earnest money. Earnest money is before the contract has been signed, before you actually own the property, before the transaction has taken place, but you put a check down that's a percentage of the overall amount to say, we are serious about this. This isn't just an offer, numbers that we're throwing up. We are serious about the offer that we are making. That's what happens with faith. We can't buy the house on our own. We can't afford it. Only God can be the one who can bring enough resources together to get the house. But we come in and say, Here's my earnest money. Here's the money that if you want, you can take it or you can give it back to me. We are serious about this offer and we want to be a part of this. When it comes to a miracle, we have to go all in in order to see what God is doing. Otherwise, the miracles are going to continue to happen all around us. We just won't see it. We just won't be cognizant of it. If you're taking notes, one last quote today. God often requires a deposit of faith before releasing access to the miraculous. Let me say that again. God often requires a deposit of faith before releasing access to the miraculous. Not a test, but a deposit, a display, and then the Lord takes care of the rest. One of the great examples of this in Scripture is Moses. You ever thought about how difficult the journey would have been for Moses? We'll close with this story. With Moses... Moses has been called by God to lead his people out of slavery and bondage. And it starts on a mountainside where he's a disgraced prince of Egypt. He's run to the Badlands, and he's hiding out as a shepherd, and he's got a new family, but he's hanging out on the mountainside. This is one who had grown up in the halls of Pharaoh. And all of a sudden, here he is on the mountainside, and the Lord says, I want you to go back, step into those halls that you grew up in, and I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. That Moses even showed up to do that. He cannot do it on his own, and he knows Pharaoh. He knows there's no way that he's going to let go of those people just because his old brother Moses ask for him to do so. So when he shows up, for him to even walk through the halls of the palace in Egypt took so much faith. The Lord steps it up. While he's meeting with Pharaoh, the Spirit of God says, take your staff and throw it on the ground. It's going to turn into a serpent. you imagine the faith of Moses in there to be like, I'm going to show you the Lord's power and just throw a stick on the ground? He can't make it turn into a snake. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And yet Moses has the faith to go, Lord, I don't get it. I don't know what. A stick turning into a snake is going to help anything. But if that's what you want me to do, I'll take one more step in faith. I can't have Pharaoh set them free, but I can throw a stick on the ground. And so what does he do? He takes one more step in faith. The day comes when the Lord has enacted all these plagues. But Moses is called to step out in faith and tell the people of Israel the 10th plague is going to be the most difficult. It's symbolic of what our God is going to send his son to do for us. I need you to take the blood of a lamb and to paint it over your doorpost so that the plague of the firstborn won't hit your household, that the angel of death might pass over your home. Can you imagine the faith of Moses to tell the people this? 
and then the faith of each individual household to paint that bloody doorpost, all of a sudden they are a part of the journey of faith as well. We can't make Pharaoh let us go, but we can paint our doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And then all of a sudden they are miraculously set free. The only people group that I could name to you that were set free without any type of violent revolution. They just walk out of Egypt set free because the Lord had led them. It begs our final question today. Is God asking you to write a faith check today? Is God asking you to write a faith check? Now, there's some of you are like, I knew it. I knew the pastor was going to talk about money. Every time I finally come to church, a pastor talks about money. If that's what you heard today, you missed it, all right? I said faith check, not a check. Now, just for the record, some of you need to write faith actual checks because the Lord has got to set you free from that, that hold that your finances have over your spirit. But a faith check is where you say, Lord, it all belonged to you in the first place. If you've called me to throw down my stick, I'll throw down my stick. If you've called me to have a conversation with someone that's uncomfortable, I'm going to have that conversation because you've called for it. If you've called me to have people sit in groups of 50, I'll have them sit in groups of 50. Lord, if you've called me to have, again, a conversation where I share faith with someone that I know and love, I'm going to plant the seed and trust you to do, the, to do the, uh, the magic of photosynthesis. Is God asking you to put a deposit of faith down today so that then when the miracle happens, you are bought in to what God is doing? I know it sounds simple. It's supposed to. All we can do is what we can do. But what we can do in the hands of Almighty God is eternal in nature and it is limitless because he is the one putting the power behind it. I love you guys. I know this was kind of a heady lesson and on Christmas nonetheless, Christmas sweater Sunday, but even the Christmas story is shrouded completely from top to bottom in holy, immaculate faith. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection. There's nothing mystical or magical about this time. Just a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different because of the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anyone here today that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I feel the Spirit's conviction, and I know I'm supposed to do something. But up until today, I've just written it off because I knew I couldn't do everything. With nobody looking around but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would listen to the voice of conviction and that I would be willing to do something. With nobody looking around but just me, if that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful. It's powerful. Y'all can put your hands down. Thank you. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you. But your prayer is very simple. It's that prayer we talked about moments ago. Just pray, Lord, what would you have me do? Lord, what would you have me do? It's that simple. God, show me what I'm supposed to do. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, I've actually had some divine appointments recently. 
There have been some connections with people that I know I just can't shake it. I was supposed to meet them, and I need to meet with them again. I need to talk with them again. Now, just for the record, it needs to be appropriate. It needs to be a situation that's godly. But if the Spirit has stirred in your gut, has stirred in your mind, and you'd say, Zach, I need to give proper attention to a divine appointment today. If that's you, I just want to pray for you. If that's you, if you just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful. It's powerful. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. There are no meetings that are by accident, especially in this city. If that's you, just pray that simple prayer. Lord, let me give proper attention to that person you brought across my path. Lord, let me give proper attention to that person you brought across my path. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, I'm bought in on the project. Zach, I'm cognizant of those divine appointments, but I've been real reluctant to write that faith check. I've been real reluctant to go all in on this. I've been real reluctant to actually put a deposit down to put down some earnest money on the work that God is doing. Remember, the Lord does not expect you to do it on your own, but he does expect you to do your part. He does expect you to do what you can do. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. I need to both literally or figuratively write a faith check today. I need to go all in and do my part for the miracle that God is bringing about. For my family, for myself, for our country, for the world, for the kingdom. With nobody looking but just me, if that's you, if you just lift your hand where you are right now. That takes guts. That takes guts. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. Thank you for that. I'm going to pray for you. But if that was you, just pray these simple words. God, I'll write the check. God, I'll do what you've called me to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings. And Lord, thank you for the story of Elijah. And Lord, thank you for the faith of this widow woman in the story as well. Thank you for the way that you used the two of them to bring about something that we are still benefiting from even to this day. When we become fully cognizant of a miracle that's happening around us, it's not just good for then, it's good for all time. Lord, I thank you for showing us this through scripture. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for those going through conviction today. I pray that they would cry out in their spirit, Lord, what would you have me do that they would mean it with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, that you might use them powerfully to bring about your kingdom. God, I pray for those considering divine appointments. I pray that you would give them your wisdom and insight. Show them why they were meant to be connected with that person and give them courage to reach out. And Lord, for those that need to write that faith check today, I pray that you would empower them and that you would give them one more burst of courage so that they could finally issue that deposit of faith. We love you, Lord. Speak in power in these final moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray.